Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to the next podcast at Trek No Babble. This is Matthew. And this is Kevin. And today we are doing the Season 3 episode of Deep Space Nine, entitled Destiny. Um, now, Kevin, you say you have a, a, a liking for this episode. I do. It's, it's not a perfect episode by any stretch, but I, I enjoy the episodes where they engage Bajoran religion in a non-ridiculous way. And uh, when I say that, um, the one where Kira and Jake have a Mortal Kombat fight on the Promenade Springs to mind. Um, I also enjoy watching Cisco struggle with his role as emissary. There's another episode uh, later on, I forget if it's this season or next season, uh, A Session, um, written by a writer who I really like, Jane Espenson. She wrote for Buffy, and I really think she's a very good writer. And it, it again deals with Cisco's sort of, he's trapped here because he can't reject the role without alienating the people he's there to help. But accepting it goes against both his personal and professional beliefs as a Federation citizen and a Starfleet officer. And, and you know, in that conflict, I think there's some interest. Um, yeah, I agree, I agree with that. And I think they've kind of ignored it for a yeah, long time. Yeah, um, and I think this is the first episode at all where his status as the emissary has any meaningful context for the Majoran people. Well, you know, I, like Kai Wynn has referenced it a few times. I think Kai Opaka mentioned it like once. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it like, did, am I imagining it? Have we already seen an episode in which someone wants him to like bless their kid or something? I don't think so. That, that might've been storyteller with chief O'Brien, an episode we would do well to forget. Um, I also, uh, you know, they they interweave it into the um, Cardassian peace process subplot that they've developed this season, and I remember liking that as well. I remember thinking, oh, hey, that was like two episodes ago, they were talking about that, and it's still a thing, and that, that delighted me as yeah. a fan, that we had what would obviously be a major culture shift for the Majorans, peace with the Cardassians, that's a big thing, and it has actual consequences in the show. Um, yeah. And we'll, we'll get to this in the episode. I found the Cardassians themselves and the Cardassian plot delightful. I, I really enjoyed that part of the episode. Um, and when we get there, we'll discuss it more. But there's a conversation between Cisco and Kira that I really like. Um, I just All enjoyed. Right. I, I think so, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, and, and I think it makes it. I, I think it makes the episode worthwhile, if not perfect. Uh, there, there, it's lacking in a few places, and I'll, I'll, I'll save my thoughts about what those are until the right moment but i don't know i if and if, if nothing else i enjoy watching this episode there's you know conflict on several different angles and everyone has you know split loyalties and decision making and you know there's some wormhole there's some neato wormhole effects and you know so i enjoy watching this episode and you know right. that's part of my 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 calculus is like did i enjoy the 30 you know the 40 minutes i spent sitting here looking at it, and I always do. Yeah, all right. Well, let's uh, get this show on the road then. Uh, everybody at home, get your DVDs, hopefully Blu-rays at some point soon, um, or Netflix or Hulu, or I guess now we have uh, StarTrek.com. Uh, you will have to pause the podcast during the commercials, but hey, that's the way it is. Um, I suppose that's true on Hulu as well. Um because, of course, you're paying to watch commercials for some reason. Uh, okay, so everybody get whatever media you have ready to go, and we will press play simultaneously 
in three, two, one, press play. So they start right with the Cardassian uh, idea. They're going to deploy a subspace relay to the Gamma Quadrant, which, you know, like, I feel like the writers want to get that done, but it, it doesn't really impact anything all that much. Like, the only impact it really has is within this story as sort of a driver of conflict. Well, I, I think once the Dominion arc gets into full swing, the idea of having real-time communication through the wormhole becomes a little more uh, useful. But uh, well, I, 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 mean, I think it might be a useful story device, but at the end of the day, all it does is make the Gamma Quadrant less special. Like, I think there's more interesting stuff to be done by not having communication across the wormhole than by having it. Because having it just makes it effectively, you know, just any other portion of the Star Trek universe. Um, I, I like the little conversation here between Odo and Cisco. It's a very Federation attitude Cisco is espousing here that um, we can all get along and that interacting in, you know, normal, mundane, everyday ways will supersede the 100 years of tragedy that came before it. And I, I like that. I like those words coming out of Cisco's mouth because I'm certain Cisco believes them. So Kinar has now uh, solidified into the goopy uh, dark pancake, brown like stuff. Pancake syrup, yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. I never had any problem with the different kind of um, uh, Kinar. I mean, yeah, it, it, like, White rum, wine versus red yeah, wine. Rum comes in different colors. I, I know, yeah. So, here's the peace treaty. And 34th I, rule. I like the rules of acquisition. I like the joke that she gets it wrong, but she gets it wrong because they're so similar. Uh, peace is good for business. War is good for business. It, it does make you wonder about the uh, the rules of acquisition in general. You know, if they're really just sort of pithy slogans, you know, and we're, of course we're going to have an episode on this very soon. <laughs> to be fair, if I ran an intergalactic civilization based on a codex of rules, they would largely be a collection of pithy sayings. Um, right. <laughs> I see. I think that episode would have been more. Well, we're talking about another episode now, but I think that episode would have been more interesting if they had really gotten into how it's like this foundational text, yeah, yeah. you know, and why. Anyway, so we're getting sort of a long teaser with sort of Quark jokes. Uh, you know, the joke being that Quark welcomes Cardassians because he can expand his gambling concession and all this stuff. I really do have to wonder... I mean, like, Dax has broken the seal on this bottle, and I think she tries it here. Yeah. And, like, this is supposed to be a gift. You know? Yeah, I always wonder just why she, like, finger. I wish they had added, a, like, a, just a moment that maybe she smelled something that was off, like there was a reason for her to do that, because otherwise it is just a kind of baseless setup for the joke. Yeah. Anyway, neat bottles. <laughs> I wonder if you can buy bottles like that. 
Uh, I'm sure you could at the bar in the Star Trek experience before it closed. Oh, that's a good point. So, we are introduced to Vedic Yarka. I love this actor. He is the, like, omnibus Middle Eastern, Southwest Asian actor. If you need someone to play someone from Morocco to Pakistan, you hire Eric Avari. Yeah. As he, he was the Egyptian father in Stargate. He was the Pakistani ambassador in an episode of West Wing. It just, it's, and he has a great voice. I, I like Yeah, he has a great voice. Thought. That's really the thing. Uh, you know, good look in general, but a great voice. Uh, so he's he's a memorable presence because of that. Um, yeah, I agree with that. So, you know, the sort of tagline of the teaser is, you know, something terrible is going to happen, right? Yeah. Um, so I guess it's a good time as I need to talk about you know, the writing of the episode. Um, now, the episode was, I guess, a, a spec script pitched by David Cohen and Martin Weiner, uh, but it received a rewrite by Rene Echevarria. Um, because, you know, apparently in the original spec script, the prophecy was, like, nice, like something good was going to happen. And so everybody's like, well, gee, what's the drama, right? Um, but then, in their rewrite, it was going to be Cisco is threatened in his job because Starfleet doesn't like the whole emissary thing. Like, and I really like that angle, you know. And I kind of, kind of wish they had put, kept that in here. Um, I suppose they had to make room for something like maybe the Cardassian scientist stuff, which was fun, wouldn't have been able to be, you know, elaborated on if they'd gone into Starfleet stuff. But I feel like it would have been a little more personal yeah. for, for the character. Well, I, I think at various points over the series, a Starfleet shows a somewhat ambivalent stance on Cisco's status. You know, they're happy to take advantage of it when when it is not too egregious for them to do so. Yeah. Um, versus calling him out on it when it's also convenient to do so, which is fine in and of itself. That's interesting. You know, uh, military organizations and governments take inconsistent positions based on convenience. That's life. Um, so that that's that's fine. All right. So it's Tracor's prophecies that are sort of uh, pushing this along here. Tracor's words are clear. When the river wakes, stirred once more to Janir's side, three vipers will return to their nest. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, those are not clear. That's pretty metaphorical. <laughs> well, I, I, and I like that he, a true believer, feels that they're clear, perfectly clear. Um, you know, it's kind of like when you hear these Nostradamus prophecies or, you know, uh, you know, the lion wakes and roars. It's like, well, duh, that's obviously Winston Churchill or something. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, I like. And so, oh, go ahead. I like that tension anyway. I yeah, like I, the tension between a rationalist view and this sort of spiritual view. And I like Kira's ambivalence because Kira's faith is obviously very important to her, but it's always seemed very important to her, at least as much as part of her Bajoranness than as you know faith in and of itself. Um, so I, oh, yeah, I like she's a cultural Jew or something. Right. And that, that, that's actually, you, you took the metaphor right out of my mouth. Um, 
to, to, to come with another one, uh, I was thumbing through Dan Savage's new book, which came out today, and he talks about he's a, like, like a hypocritical atheist, like he, uh, he crosses himself when he gets on a plane, but doesn't actually believe in God, and it's that kind of like... Well, you know, I don't go that far, jeez. It's just, you know, it, it's, I think there are a lot of people in many faiths for, you know, they identify culturally with their faith, they go through the rituals and derive value from them, but may not necessarily believe any or all of the, you know, be- in substantive beliefs in the religion. And I, I like, so I like seeing the conflicts for Kira, um, especially between, like, you know, she, over the last few seasons, the last three seasons, I think they've successfully shown Kira and Cisco working together, together, certainly better and coming to trust each other. And she's concerned that reminding him of his status as the emissary will imperil that relationship. And that that's interesting. That's, you know, good conflict. Yeah. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about characters growing and changing in various series. And, I mean, I think Kira is certainly the character that has grown the most in these three seasons so far. Yeah. Uh, I think she's changed the most. And not just in terms of, like... No shouting. Yeah, getting notes on her performance, like as an actress, right? Like it's in the writing. Yeah. You know, the writing has changed her character. Um, and it's too bad that some of the other characters haven't received as much growth. Uh, you know, like Bashir, he's been re- rehabilitated a bit, but I think it's really more acting. Yeah. Because his parts in episodes have been kind of minor. Um, you know, it's. In, He's grown as much as someone like Nog has grown, you know. It's like they're actually finding something to get him to do. It's it's not that his character is materially changing. Um, you know, you might say the same for, like, Troy and TNG. It's like they had one or two Troy episodes and then didn't do anything with her for several seasons, you know. But then they came back to her with a vengeance and did a good job with her. Yeah. All right, so here are the Cardassian scientists. Uh, one of whom is some kind of actress that you know and love. I just recognize her. I I, I like her a great deal. She played, she was one of the uh, people in the newspaper in Lois and Clark, and she was the woman who took over for Claudia Christian in Babylon 5. So she she, she has her sci-fi fantasy cred down. Um, yeah. That's the one on the right. Uh, her yeah, name Tracy, yeah, Tracy Scoggins. And, yeah, good actress. Again, good voice. That kind of, you know, three-pack-a-day smoker woman voice that just sounds great on TV. Um, I, I feel like they did a pretty good job with the casting of all, I don't want to spoil it for you, but all three Cardassians. Oh, um, there's going to be three? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> the prophecy is coming true. <laughs> well, no, they, they did a good job. You know one of the things they have to do here is to not make these Cardassians too similar to the one that Quark was involved with. Yeah. And the one on the left here is kind of similar. Um, but they did a decent job of casting and writing them to be, you know, scientists. Well, uh, and that, a couple of things I like about the Cardassian scientists. Um, I believe both from the writing and the performance, both of these women have internal lives, wants, hopes, dreams, desires, careers that exist when their character is not on screen. And that makes them inherently more interesting. And I like the visual design. Uh, I think the, what's her name? Um, Carinus, the the Obsidian Order agent from Defiant, had a very similar hairdo uh, to the Cardassian on the left. 
Uh, yeah, so it's I, almost like Egyptian or something. It's... Yeah, and I like it. I, I also like the expansion of Cardassian society in that uh, the Cardassian gender chauvinism is that women are scientists, men are military. That That's interesting and different and, you know... So uh, there's a lot of little touches to this episode that I think make it very interesting. Or like um, when, when they get to later on in the episode, the Cardassian um, politics discourage you from making frank disclosures of the risks of your project that feels very soviet to me yeah well that's what they're going for you know they're going for this sort of cold war it's like even in a cold war uh there are still people on both sides who can you know get together and uh you know have some common ground although there's still going to be cultural tension and so it, it was a good thing that they didn't just make them completely sympathetic yeah, you know, like she just flubbed on calling it Terak Nor, and like you said, they're gonna, you know, run into some issues with just little things that they say, you know. So they they did a good job of making them full bodied, you know, yeah. not just, uh, you know, oh, plot these are ones we're supposed to like, right? Or plot devices. They 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 didn't just move the story along and fail and cease to exist um, when the camera wasn't on them. So I and I enjoy and that's. That's part of my enjoyment of the episode. It's just a bunch of interesting people all running around doing interesting things. So well, you know. and I I think it's really kind of too bad that neither of these actresses was brought back. Yeah, they they both did a great job. Like I really wanted to know more about them. Well, I think they they were strong enough to be recurring characters. Um, you know, and it probably could have deepened the portrayal of the Cardassians somewhat like yeah. maybe, maybe one could be promoted to, you know, science minister or something. Yeah. Uh, and so could just come back whenever there's a science thing for the Cardassians and the Federation to do like, like the, where they build the boat, right? Yeah. Like that would have been a good episode for one of them to come back. Um, boy, Cisco's got a real fade working on his hairdo there. Well, this hairdo is not long for the world. I think we're about four or five episodes from when they finally decide that uh, his his character of Hawk is enough of a distant memory that he can shave his head again. Um, <laughs> so they introduced this thread that the Vedic was stripped of his title. It really doesn't go very far, you know, and they're going to talk about how he, his followers are on the station and they're going to give a line of dialogue which is like, well, let's keep an eye on that and make sure he doesn't make trouble for the Cardassians. But we didn't really get any trouble. You know? Yeah, it would have been more interesting to see some trouble. I think there should have been trouble. You know? Yeah. And it would have been more interesting for the emissary thing, the emissary part of the story, if there had been trouble and Cisco were in the in the thick of it. You know? Right. And now he's being asked to choose, which is you know it's like uh, like Monty Python's Life of Brian. Follow the shoe. Follow the gourd. Like what? What happened? Like, one one element of the emissary story that we never got developed, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head, is what happens when there's two different sects of Bajorans who think the emissary should do or should be something different. That's a much more that that's an interesting conflict. Um, yeah. So I I feel like this episode didn't raise the stakes at some crucial junctures. Yeah. I did like the way they slowly they started a slow burn on Kira. It, you know, if if not fully embracing the prophecy, at least being concerned enough to want to stop going forward. 
because at, at any time you do any type of uh, religious horror story or, you know, like the Omen or the Exorcist, you always have the skeptic where there's like a slow build of one or two things and one or two more things until they get themselves to a place where they can believe whatever's going on. And I thought they did that well for Kira. Yeah, I agree with that. So here's the doctor making his appearance in this episode. <laughs> his contractually obligated lines. And I don't mind the little Tenar joke. It's a nice little button on the on the setup. Well, yeah, so Cork is still trying to sell the bad Kinar. Something I noticed, and I don't know if they just haven't established, um, like, all of the Vedics and their various clerical robes, but all the other Bajoran religious figures, I don't know how did. I was going to say all the others except Varile have a hat. And a nifty hat at that. And I was just curious if the lack of hat was supposed to be some subtle cue to his whatever we call whatever his status is. That he's yeah, I like his outfit better than all the other Vedics I've seen. Um, oh, I I still I still kind of love uh, um, Vedic wins then Vedic wins purple like Sydney Opera House hat. That was ridiculous, and I loved it. I like his earring. Yeah, definitely works for him. Looks exotic. Oriental, if you will. And I mean that in the original sense. Yeah. <laughs> From the Orient. Yeah, you know, so that's a nice little exchange. You know, without your faith, what do you have left? It, it calls back to some of her earlier... Uh, you know, protestations that faith in the prophets was one of the only things that got people through the occupation. Yeah. Uh, I also... Uh, oh, go ahead. How do you like Dax having met one of these great Cardassian authors? Yeah, she's lived 300 years. I mean, uh, you're going to meet a celebrity, I think, once in 300 years. Um, I actually... I was going to say, I really like this scene here... Um, it was certainly up until the moment the third Cardassian arrives, because we all, I always like, you know, slice of life stuff. So the idea that all these people would go get dinner makes sense. And it's, it's a cute little scene and they're all like, Oh, you're fun to talk to. Like, I, I like little stuff like that. And I think it helps, it helps flush out these characters. Like, you know, they, they don't like traditional Cardassian food. It's like, Oh, that's, that's a personality trait, you know, like it, it, it all these little stuff added depth to the Cardassian characters that made me like them more. It, um... The art department went crazy with the food. I re Are those supposed to be tapas, whatever the, the Tespid eggs, whatever... Um, tespa eggs. Yeah, that uh, Madrid... No, they're too, they're too small to be Tespa. Um, <laughs> or maybe it's a different variety of Tespa. But that, is, that is a colorful plate of food. <laughs> No, they definitely did a good job of it. I, uh, like, I kind of feel like the Obsidian, uh, you know, spoiler alert, she's a member of the Obsidian Order. And it's kind uh, of obvious from the first frame she walks on and is an enormous bitch to yeah, everyone. <laughs> yeah, like, I feel like that's a little too obvious. Like, it would have it, it would have been a better twist if one of the two we'd already met had been the Obsidian Order agent. I agree with that, definitely. But also, um... I just I feel like the dynamic between the three Cardassians, like the two scientists are too 
uh, insulting. Like, they're not afraid of her at all, you know? And so yeah. I, I kind of feel like, what's going on here? It's like, one of my problems with Cardassia and the whole Obsidian Order thing is that it hasn't been sufficiently differentiated to me from the Tal Shiar thing from the Romulans in TNG, you know? So it's like, as a, as a fan, as someone who wants story detail and background, you know, like I really want something to sink my teeth into to really feel that this is just a Cardassian thing, as opposed to this is what the writers feel anything but the Federation would have, you know, like some sort of secret police, basically. Right. And, and I, I just feel like they haven't been distinguished enough yet and this just kind of muddies the issue you know the fact that they're interacting in this way and that she's so obvious about it you know so that's just i i I get that complaint i mean i would say when it when it's like garrick or inabrantane in the room you get the sense that it's something bigger and they they definitely sell it as something better um you know, so Jessica Hendra, who plays Dejar, you know, eh, not as good as Tracy Scoggins or Wendy Roby, you know. Yeah. But part of that's based on what's on the page. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we we talked over it, but they were introducing the, I guess you could call it kind of a B-plot, uh, between uh, Gilora and Chief O'Brien. I, I liked what they did with it because both actors carried it, and it's it's funny without being like obnoxious or character assassination to make a joke. It's like she interpreted his actions through her cultural lens as flirting, and he thought she was just being annoying, and yeah. that that's funny. I mean, like especially uh, when they're in the Jeff. We'll, we'll get to the scene but when they're in the Jeffrey's tube, and it's like all comes to light who was thinking what when i left yeah um and i guess it's the second episode is it second in a row in which cultural uh relativist kind of stuff is brought to the fore is, does this come right after uh life support no i think it's two episodes after life two support. episodes after okay Oh, yeah, because Heart of Stone's in between. Okay, so here we're, we're, we're coming up to the conversation that I really, really, really like in this episode. And I like that he's pissed at her for doing... Well, I like that look on her face. Yeah. Like, she knows what she's in for. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, I do like this conversation, and... Uh, I uh, no, I'll sa- I'll save this other critique for the end of the episode. It'll make more sense there. But r- remind me to explain why I find the whole prophecy thing a little silly. But we'll get okay. back to that. Um, but this it's is interesting this... that there's no ready room on the ship. Yeah, I was just thinking that like they all they have are these bunk beds. I, I Appar- like... apparently uh, as a production uh, note this. Excuse me, this room, um, the only real wall is the one with the door on it. The other three walls can be removed for any kind of camera shot or angle they want to do. So they can give you different looks at the quarters, different uh, camera angles. 
I don't know. I find that mildly interesting. Yeah. And I hope you do too. It's the kind of minutia we thrive on here at Trechnobabble. I, I, I like that the conversation eventually gets to this place. It's not just, do you believe in the prophecy? It's, do you think I'm the emissary? And that's because that's, that's the, that's the point we've been dancing around up to this point is what is it, what does it mean for Cisco to be the emissary? What does it mean to work with people who think he's a religious icon? That, cause, and that, that, that's a nifty idea. And it's, and there's good conflict here. You know, it's like it's Cisco doesn't want to be the emissary. That was a total drama circuit on the oh, door. Oh, yeah, totally. That door so should have opened. <laughs> the door's like, yeah, he doesn't mean it. He's going to turn around and say something else. Something Starfleet. And I like Kira's response here that... Um, Knowing, like, like, treating the prophets as Cisco does, she can construct a reason to take the prophecy seriously. And it's, it's not off the wall. It's a little, it's a bit of a self-serving argument, but it's not impossible. No, I mean, look, this has been my thing about the Bajoran religion since the outset of the show. It, it's essentially not terribly mysterious. <laughs> it's like we've actually been contacted within living memory, you know, by beings who have given us actual you know sort of actionable information you know yeah. it's not faith <laughs> that's my problem with the Bajoran religion it's not faith-based you know i feel like they should have kept that a little more mysterious but given that it's not faith-based her argument here makes perfect sense it's like look we've got these non-temporal aliens who you know clearly have information that they do communicate every now and again so Let's just take this with a little less of a grain of salt and a little more with some seriousness. You know, it's, it's a totally valid argument. Well, I, I would say I think the dichotomy they try to set up as is the Bajorans see the wormhole aliens as gods and whatever that means, that means, whereas Starfleet views them as the creatures that inhabit the wormhole. Or like like in the um, uh, school episode in uh, yeah, Hands of the Prophets in season one, Keiko's argument is this wormhole was artificially constructed by the beings who live inside it, and when objected to that interpretation because it wasn't sufficiently, you know, religious. So I, I think that was what they were going for was that even in the like even if you had objective proof that God existed, that wouldn't quite resolve the faith question because if you had proof God existed, that doesn't quite meet the definition of God. Like it's not like. Like if they are just wormhole aliens, then Bajoran religion still doesn't quite hold water because they're just part of the universe, not you know above it and separate from it. Do you, you, you yeah. know what I'm saying? They, yeah. They they could have sharpened that um, discussion at points, but I, I get it. Well, I don't I don't feel like there's really a creator god in Bajoran religion. None's ever been referenced. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They don't really clarify beyond throwing around poetically worded prophecies what the prophets do but um so one thing to note about the performances here you know tracy scoggins especially does a great job of delivering techno babble with emotion you know like they're arguing about you know techno babble they're right. arguing about nonsensical things that don't mean anything to actors or really to fans although of course we will try to you know, invest them with meaning. Right. Uh, yeah. So uh, like, okay, 
Like, the acting note is a little obvious here. <laughs> like, clearly she now wants to bang him because he's, you know, put his foot down. Yeah. Uh, uh, was that satellite a reuse of the Emergoza station? No, generation? no. It looks cool. Yeah. But I don't think it is. It, it wasn't mentioned on Memory Alpha, anyway. I'll say all the Cardassians uh, did good work with their with their techno babble. So yeah, I mean, I just feel like this uh, subspace relay through the wormhole, and then sort of the danger that's created, like oh no, the wormhole will collapse. Like, I just I never really felt it. Well, no. it, it's a little artificial, and, like, seriously, what are the odds that the comet was going close enough by? I mean, seriously, intergalactic distances, people, it's a... Well, and I don't like the eventual sort of, um, we'll get there when we get there, you know, yeah. the eventual sort of technobabble solution they come up with. So, I, I do like the thing you mentioned you know the, the idea that Cardassian scientific ethics are different than federation scientific ethics you know so that they're willing to you know and they're actually they mentioned it with the like the double uh backups redundant right. backups like starfleet clearly is just much more anal about stuff like this and the Cardassians are like yeah whatever let it fly um you know, so I like that aspect of the story, but yeah, the whole wormhole thing just, eh. It's a bit of a, what's the word I'm looking for, MacGuffin, where it's just, you know, it's just there to be the problem. The Yeah, so I, I actually think the, the thing with the trouble on the station, you know, if, if the Vedic's followers, like, if there were, like, rioting on the station or, like, orgies because people think the world is coming to an end or, you know, like, something like that, that could have added some an emotional component to the wormhole thing. Like, oh, no, the temple is being destroyed, you know. Like, people should have been freaking the, sh the fuck out, you know. That, yeah. that would have done something to the story for me. Yeah, I agree. It's very talky, you know. And it's not to say the effects were bad or anything. They were they were nice visual effects, but visual effects do not a story make. J.J. Abrams, like we don't care about it if there's not really something going on behind it. Now, the spoons on their heads, uh, the blue is supposed to be like makeup, right? I've I've always read it as makeup. Um... Because it's not that way on the male's heads. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that, you know, there's just different colored plumage um, for the two genders, but I always read it as cosmetic, not uh, dermatological. Well, they've got it on their necks, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's got to be... Uh, I mean, I guess they never... I don't think they ever call it out. But... Oh, you know what? Uh, Kira didn't have it when she was a Cardassian. Hers was, hers was brown. Oh, good. There you go. See, we, we do care about Minutia here at Trek <laughs> Okay, this, I gotta say, I, I enjoy uh, Galore's performance here because it it it's farcical and it's broad, but it's it's on the inside of the line. Like, it's supposed to be farcical over the top, but it's not 
distracting <laughs> or annoying. No, I agree. Well, it's, it's, actually it's funny. fun because of the way O'Brien reacts to it, too. It's like he's trying to ignore it. She's being obvious. Her character is being obvious, and that's right. fine. It fits with the story. She, you know, like she feels that he has made his intentions clear, and so she's making hers clear. You know, she's basically tossing her hair and batting her eyelashes and, you know, <laughs> like pointing her straw towards him or, you know, stuff like that. And oh my god, like the, uh, the, the hand bit and the, like, the, like, obsce- the compliments, like, oh, you're so good with this. And I was like, oh, it's so ridiculous, but try they get the job done, I guess. <laughs> I also like that in the middle of a what has developed into a crisis that could likely destroy her career. She's like, ah, I get it. Well, it's good. I mean, <laughs> well, hey, you know, she wants to settle down and have kids, right? Many healthy children. Oh, that. <laughs> I think you're getting a little ahead of yourself. That delivery always slays me. You're married? It's too bad people don't wear wedding rings in the future. Well, would she recognize... Uh, he might. Would she recognize that as, that, that would be the significance? <laughs> I took your overt irritability toward me as a signal that she wished to pursue some physical relationship. To me, that's the funniest thing. Yeah. You know, irritability. You, you do have to wonder if scientists in Cardassian society are like scientists in human society, where they're not exactly the most socially adept people. Like a like a military officer or a non-scientist might not have so, with such gusto, committed this faux pas. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I feel I, I'm getting that. <laughs> oh God, he used the word flattered. <laughs> You've made your feelings clear. And <laughs> now I'm leaving. <laughs> With what little dignity she has. <laughs> we have to finish this. So here's Cisco reading the prophecy in Bajoran. Which we, t- we, so we assume he's learned at this point. I guess. I always wondered how the Universal Translator worked for text, because Google Glass is apparently going to be able to just overlay the translated text right in front of me. That seems like it would be kind of dangerous if you were, like, driving in a foreign country. Right. All right, uh, here's a good point. If most of them are vague, how can they be contradictory? Okay, here's my thing about prophecies, and not just the Bajoran philosophies, all the prophecies, collectively, is a thing. Either they're, either prophet, the prophecy is for something that can be changed or cannot be changed. If it can't be changed, what's the point of the prophecy? If it can be changed, it's not a prophecy; it's an advisory. Yeah, it's a warning. Right. If if it's clear enough, if the if the Bajoran prophecy is you, yes, you, Benjamin Lafayette Cisco, on what you call star date four eight five six five point two are going to do this in the wormhole, that would prove the prophecy was possible because it would be clear enough to make it clear that this was a prophecy. If it's not, the only way, the only time you ever know a prophecy is true is after the events it's foretold have already come to pass. No one has ever been able to use Nostradamus' prophecies to alter the future or to make a more informed decision. They only go, oh, 
I can retroactively decide that this prophecy accurately predicted an event that, from my perspective, has already happened. So, well, so here's here's the issue. Um, now, for us on Earth, when we have prophecies, I think, Kevin, you will likely go along with me when I say that these prophecies are human inventions. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, I... I, as a rational skeptic, I have a difficult time believing that, you know, people who have had prophetic visions have actually been in contact with higher powers, but instead have been suffering from temporal lobe epilepsy or, you know, the use of various narcotics, you know, psychoactive stimulants, whatever, right? Um, and so for us, when we're questioning prophecies, you know, we're really just kind of questioning what was the motive of the human that invented this prophecy. Well, I mean, even right? taking prophecy at face value, what's the motive of the source uh, for the prophet? What What is the utility of giving humans garbled versions of events they can't possibly know are true until the event you're predicting? What, what is the point of a prediction that is only valid after it has already come to pass? What, why, well, why inter what, what is the utility of this form of intervention? I suppose yeah. is my question. Well, and so okay, let's let's ask that question of what we've been given in Deep Space Nine, which is of course uh, the scenes that we almost always loathe within an episode, and that is the orb visions, right? Right. So presumably Tricor had an orb vision. In fact, they said it. You know, he encountered the orb of prophecy or something. Um, do you feel, Kevin, that the orb visions are um, vague, obscure, or do they kind of beat you over the head with, you know, this is what it all means, right? Well, I guess uh, it depends on the episode. Yeah, it depends on the episode. Well, here's the thing. Like, the Orb prophecies from a objective perspective do nothing but certify the existence of the prophets as actual beings. So there we go. That, 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 I guess that could be the only utility of a prophecy to a god, which would be to provide objective proof of their existence, for only a god could have predicted the thing that happened before it happened. I mean, beyond that, what what is the what's the point? Why bother? Well, I mean, I think we're supposed to take it that the wormhole aliens have taken a particular interest in the Bajoran people. You know, like it's the the planet with the closest proximity. Um, you know, that, like, they care in some fashion, in whatever fashion atemporal beings can care, they care in some fashion about Bajor, okay? And so they've let their sort of orbs trickle out and be picked up by Bajorans, and Bajorans in particular have prophetic visions from these orbs uh do you feel do you agree with me like yeah, i feel yeah, like yeah yeah I, I, I mean I, I in the way that yahweh is like particularly interested in the hebrews right like i feel like that's what the prophets are to bajor um and that's not to say they don't have any power over anybody else they do you know yahweh has power over everybody right but Yahweh cares the most about the Hebrews. Well, I've been trying to think 
I've been review as we've been watching the episode. I've been trying to see if there is any action the crew took that they would not have taken, but for the prophecy. Like, did the prophecy encourage or discourage an action that, absent the existence and discussion about the prophecy, would not have been taken? And my answer is no. No, the answer is no. And in fact, the scene that Dax has with Cisco is confirmation of that. You know, like, she's just like, you know, what are you gonna do? You gonna let this prophecy run your life? And the answer is no. <laughs> You know, right, because you, you you're do what you would have done as a Starfleet officer. Right, you, you. I guess they could have tried to find a way to spin it as the prophecy. Like in your attempts to rebel against the prophecy, you brought about the events that came to pass in the prophecy, which isn't and this sort of self fulfilling loop would make perfect sense from the perspective of a being outside linear time. That could have been a fun. That could have been a fun story, but we yeah, don't really. Get I don't that. feel that they went that far here. So these are some nice effects. Oh so. yeah. You know, we get the Defiant shuttle, which is a small little thing. Um, we never see through the windows of it, uh, from the interior anyway. So I feel like it's just a redress of the Mod runabout yeah, or at, with some no. consoles put closer. Uh, I think it's the um, Maki Raider design. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, so like this stuff just wasn't all that dramatic to me. Yeah, like I never got the. I mean, obviously they're not going to destroy the wormhole. That's just yeah. not going to happen. That that's like saying we're gonna we're we're gonna kill O'Brien. Not we we know he's going to be fine. Well, I mean uh, that would have been interesting, right? Well, okay. So here's what might be, you know, what you might consider the. Uh, but you're right. They they didn't change their behavior. It just happened that a comet was close to the wormhole, and so this silithium, which was made up. Uh, I think by Andre Borminus. It's almost like a wormhole was wedged open just a crack. I don't like that. I don't like that idea. I don't like the idea that the wormhole is just kind of like a little bit open all the time. Like, shouldn't you see it then? Shouldn't it be visible in some way? I don't know. Or shouldn't that have consequences beyond your convenience? Yeah. It's like, oh, well, that really worked out. <laughs> so they accidentally achieved the goal that they wanted. Uh, and so, like, I do feel like this, uh, the Silithium ignited the wormhole, burning the temple gates. It's like, oh, thank you, characters, for you know, <laughs> explaining the prophecy to us dumb viewers who couldn't have seen that there might be a different application of it. And Tricor saw it all 3,000 years ago. But I'm not convinced he... I, I remain unconvinced he necessarily <laughs> did. Like, he could have been talking about three actual vipers. I'm just saying, like, it... And this is something else I think Deep Space Nine kind of goes back and forth with a little, is like, how, how, how much space do we give to the sort of traditional Star Trek message of secular humanism and... Uh, like, Picard smacks down religion explicitly in Who Watches the Watchers. He pretty much calls their tribal gods stupid, and their, he considers they're abandoning them a sign of growth for their entire species. Yeah, Deep I Space, will not let them slide back into superstition. Right. It's wrong. Right. Um, Deep Space Nine seems to want to give some, like, you know, that, like, it's like the end of every Christmas movie where the non-believing child hears sleigh bells on the roof that are purported in the story to be the actual Santa Claus. And it's like, they can't resist ringing the jingle bells. 
And I don't know how I feel about that overall as part of the series. Well, and so I have a problem also with this total zealot, like, doing an about face. Right. It, it should destroy him if he was wrong. He should be unable to accept that he was wrong. I mean, not that being said, they didn't really do that much with him anyway. He got, like, one speech, one conversation, and this little wrap-up here. I, I agree. Had the episode... Well, so th- this is the thing. It's like if we had seen his followers and they had been actually causing trouble, like maybe he could do an about-face because he wants to still be a Vedic. You right. know, like he still wants to be in charge. But he should. There should be. there should be some fallout for him because yeah, he's I... essentially an apocalyptic preacher. You know, yeah. And if an apocalyptic preacher says X is going to happen on date Y, and then it doesn't happen, there are consequences. You know, so I, agree. I think that aspect of the story was underdeveloped, especially, you know, too bad because they had such a good actor um, to do that with. That would have been really interesting. I would have loved to have seen him, you know, giving a firebrand speech or something. Yeah. All right, well, episode's over. Um, you know, writing-wise, I think there are hits and misses. Uh, in in some ways, the biggest hits are the sort of subplot. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cardassians. Yeah, the, the Cardassian plot with O'Brien was hilarious. The detail they added to both the individual Cardassians and the Cardassian society at large with this episode is actually pretty impressive. We, we, we learned a fair amount about their culture. We learned a lot about these two people. I really enjoyed watching it. Um, they whipped on the um, prophecy stuff for me. But like, like I said, I ha- when I said I had an affinity for this episode and um, said we should podcast it, it's largely on the strength of the Cardassian subplot that I really enjoy watching this. Yeah, I, I think that's probably pretty fair i think that was the most fun portion of the episode um you know like you said there were some good conversations about uh the role of the emissary like starfleet rationalism versus uh bajoran spiritualism but you know it was a little half-baked um there's gonna be better expositions of it you know but it's nice that they finally did something with it you know yeah, I agree. I mean, it's been since in the hands of the prophets, really. Yeah. So it's been like a season and a half since they've done to me what is the principal interesting thing about the the setting they've created. You know, like to me, the single most interesting thing in Deep Space Nine is having, you know, this spiritual planet being sort of administrated by a secular humanist society, you know, that's what's interesting about Federation and Bajor. Um, and they've just, you know, they haven't done squat with it, you know? So I'm happy that they're, they're back on that topic, but you know, eh, they did. Okay. Uh, I think the, the writing is pretty average. Yeah. Um, I think the acting is slightly above average. You know, there are no, uh, great Shakespeare soliloquies here, um, you know, no great scenes, uh, with, with the possible exception of their conversation, but even then that was pretty low key. Yeah. 
Um, I thought both um, Tracy Scoggins and Colmini did a great job with the with the humor because you know, especially when it comes to sexual humor, Star Trek can be pretty hit or miss. It can make you really want to just you know die on the inside. So I really appreciate how well they pulled it off this time. The the humor was funny. It had energy, and it didn't require me to like roll my eyes too hard to you know endure it. So I, I enjoyed that whole. Bit. And it was on the strength of the acting because they were both really funny. Yeah, yeah, I think they were the highlight uh, of the acting. But of course, um, Eric Avari was good, but underutilized as the Vedic. Um, you know, as far as the main cast, I think Nana Visitor is probably the the highlight for the main cast. Yeah, I, I certainly know, bought She did a lot of really good facial acting. Yeah. Like, I, I, I bought her struggle, um, pretty much. So, yeah. And the time yeah. the production values were good. The wormhole interior was good. The shots of the satellite and the comet destruction and all that. I like that. I mean, they were the, the uh, defined shuttle pod. It was all good, you know, solid work. Yeah, the visual effects were nice. The various sets were used well. Uh, wardrobe and makeup was good on the Cardassians. Um, you know, it was solid. Uh, so for me, it's a three. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with a three. The, the, the whiffing on a broader point to make about Bajoran culture or prophecies in general, religion, there was a bigger Star trek point to be made here, and they didn't make it, so I think that holds the episode back. But like I said, I... I always enjoy watching this episode, and there's well, a reason for that. It's a, it's an interesting idea with an imperfect execution, with some good comedy, some good acting, and some good visual effects. Yeah, that's kind of the thing. It's like the difference between a three and a two. You know, like there are twos that have as many ideas as this and are as half-baked on the ideas, uh, but because the comedy elements work... And because the production is sound, uh, you know, it just kind of gels into an average show, <laughs> which I don't know. Is that maybe that's not very interesting to hear for someone listening to our podcast, but it is what it is. We got to call them like we see them. And <laughs> this is an average show. Um, we can't always podcast the best, uh, especially when we're mired in some of the early seasons of various series. <laughs> if we only podcasted the best season one DS9 episode, there'd only be like one podcast, right? Yeah. Um, and kind of the same for season two, frankly. Uh, you know, it, it's an interesting episode to podcast because it at least uh, teases us with some of the big ideas, you know, and it's not a four or a five because it doesn't really go there. It doesn't, you know, give us a firm answer, give us a firm stance, or, you know, give us a lot of exposition, you know, on the interesting question. Uh, but at least it teases it. Um, you know, like, I, th I think they could have ramped up the conflict. I think it could have... If there had been rioting on the station and Cisco really had to put himself in the midst of it, it might be a four. Yeah. Yeah, if there were more stakes, it's a four. Um, but still, six is not bad. I, I enjoy aver 
average Star Trek is better than average other television. I mean, I'd much rather hey, it's watch... better than the new movie, right? Yeah, please. <laughs> well, here, here, the sexual humor made me laugh and not want to open my wrists in front of a theater full of people. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was there was no plotless reason to show anyone in their underwear. Which don't get me wrong, Star Trek has a history of cheesecake, as as evidenced by the stills in your hottest women in Star Trek post. But it didn't feel quite so stupid when they did it in the original series. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Um, <laughs> no, and, and you know, to be fair, some some might say that uh, TNG and DS9, uh, in particular, are are kind of sexless shows. Um, and that's too bad to some degree, you know, uh, and I don't think they're sexless, but I agree that their take on sexuality is somewhat restrained. You know, it's like there are romances, but we very rarely see them consummated. Um, and there are almost never sort of romantic triangles or misunderstandings or breakups or anything like that. Um, you know, so when we get some romantic comedy that does work, it's nice to see. Yeah. Because, uh, folks, let me tell you, <laughs> there's going to be some romance on DS9 that will not work. Uh, not at all. Whatever could you be talking about? <laughs> uh, to be fair, there is one romance that does work reasonably well. So, you know, they at least, you know. What, what, I'm curious. What, uh, you can spoil it for me. Which which romance do you think works? Is it? I, I would say Cisco and... Cassidy actually felt like a relationship more successfully. Well, yeah. see, I think Worf and Dax works the best. Oh, I, I, uh, I would agree that Worf and Dax have the most chemistry. Um, but I always thought the, the, the Cisco-Cassidy relationship, with the exception of how easily he takes her back after the Maquis thing, um, otherwise I thought it worked fine. Like, I, I, liked, I love, love Penny Johnson. Great actress. Well, yeah, I, yeah, you know, I think it works, but it they don't do it enough. And I don't mean the characters don't do it enough. I mean, like, there aren't enough episodes in which it is a, a factor to me. Like, it's like, oh, time for the Cassidy Yates episode. I, I get that. but that, It's that, been that... half a season. Nothing's happened on this storyline. Yeah. Uh, by contrast, <laughs> oh, oh, there's so much Kira and Odo. You know, it's like, God, stop telling this story, please. I don't want to see it anymore. You know, and it just keeps going and going and going. And it's like, oh, she's like being showered by a light show. And it's just like the scene is like, this is like I'm stuck in a moment and I can't get out of it. You know, it's <laughs> like, stop. You know, it's like an episode of The Twilight Zone or something. Ugh. And I don't mean the show. I mean me. Like, I'm stuck. <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, it, 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 it wasn't good. I, I didn't viscerally hate it as much as you did. I the the episode where Odo um the what is it? Simple investigation. It's like the second attempt at film noir, and he falls for the woman who turns out to be a secret agent. The writers apparently wrote that as an acknowledgement that Odo had moved on. So I have no idea why they went back. No yeah. idea. Yeah. Look. Okay, if you're not, not if you're not gonna write a romance with a shapeshifter in which the shapeshifting comes into play as far as a sexual, you know, uh, uh, aphrodisiac, just don't do it. You know, so if you're not willing to go there, 
don't have a freaking romance with the shapeshifter, you know? Just don't do it. Do you see what I'm saying? It's yeah. like, that's the... Maybe you're going to call me crass and obvious if you know by saying that. But look, like this is science fiction, right? If you have one key aspect to a character or to a piece of technology or whatever that makes it different, don't fail to exploit that key difference, you know? Because what's interesting is how what it means for humans, okay? And yes, the Bajorans are humans. <laughs> They're humans with crinkly noses. Like, they're really no different than humans. Um, so it, it was just really ill-advised, in my opinion. Okay, anyway, that's yeah. a long digression. Yeah, we, <laughs> we, we kind of went round the bend there. Point um, being, you know, the, the, when you, they can do romance that's funny, even if it's not even a real romance. Like, you know, I sometimes I kind of wish they would have thrown an, an actual affair into the mix with the O'Briens. And I say that because, not because I don't love them as a couple, and I do, but, you know, it's like, this is, these are professional adults. They're, they're spending like six months at a time apart. It's like, that would have a toll on real human relationships now. And I fail to believe that it would not also have a toll on real human relationships in the future. Well, I got you know what I'm saying? Uh, while we're digressing, I thought the moment on the runabout in the episode when, uh, like, uh, Kira was pregnant with the O'Brien's child, I thought that was handled with surprising subtlety and maturity, where the two act, where the two people were like they understood they shouldn't and it's a bad idea, but they in that moment acknowledged the mutual desire. I thought that was a great moment because if nothing else, you can kind of almost see Kira and O'Brien together. They have a certain Share, like their their shared violent past with the Cardassians, oddly enough, and like the, their outlook on the world. They, they, there's a rapport there, aside from the fact that she is in fact carrying his child. So I always like that moment where it's like I thought that was a very mature approach to relationships. They're not bad people for kind of developing a crush on each other. Their lives become much more intimate. It makes sense. And I thought, yeah. uh, like, I'm kind of glad they didn't go for an affair because I thought that would have made it feel too soap operatic. But I, I like that they acknowledged it as a thing. Oh, I, I agree. They definitely shouldn't do it with those two characters. Um, but there was this scene – I forget the episode, but basically Keiko was being a real bitch. You know, like she was just being really nasty and manipulative to O'Brien. And then she was talking about like some guy on the surface that oh, she was yeah, having Sabar. intimate conversations with. It's Sabar, like, which always sound like Sabaros to me. Like did they get <laughs> – it's like, like what the hell? You know, like if you're gonna go there, don't just do it in like a, a one off line. Like actually do the interesting story consequences, you know? Like maybe she should have had an affair with, with the guy, you know? Cause look, that's interesting. Like if you're gonna talk about a strained marriage, which this is, right? It's strained because of where they are, because of how difficult the circumstances are, because of how it's not what she wants for her career that's fascinating you know that's interesting storytelling and i just feel like they whiffed on it you know so like i'm not saying you should have done it with the cardassian in this episode but it, it is a, a long-standing criticism that that's going to come back for me with the o'brien's relationship <laughs> excuse me and that is that you know 
I feel like they tease it. They tease this tension and they tease this like strain, but all it ever really amounts to is like the doctor cracking wise about it. Yeah, I get that. So I, you know. All right. Well, um, so that okay. So this was our review of Destiny with a nice digression in romance and Star Trek. This should I, I think this should be a poster, a, 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 a you know like a multi-person discussion. I'd be interested in hearing uh, your wife and your sister's opinions on uh, romantic relationships in Star Trek. Oh yeah, sure. Oh, and you know there are plenty that we can critique <laughs> on many levels. If, if only by their absence. Yeah. Well, on their lack of development. Um, that that was what was so galling about Kira and Odo. It's like you could have spent time on so many other relationships that would be so less creepy and dumb and weird, you know. But this is the one that you're spending seasons of time on. Uh, it felt like seasons anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good night. Have a have a, a happy. Uh, Star Trek viewing experience in the future and in the past. Uh, it is not linear. All right. Good night, everyone. <laughs>